This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, this week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Her name is Lisa Cook, and she is an economist who has done some absolutely fascinating research on all sorts of really interesting things. Patents, innovation, gender, race inequality, uh, just really, really fascinating. You know, normally when I prep for an interview, I go in kind of knowing a lot about the person, and maybe I'll find one or two little interesting tidbits to ask them. But as I'm doing the research and working off of um, some of the questions that Batnick got to me, we ended up finding these really amazing research papers that she put together. Some stuff that just the data is shocking. And it's amazing that nobody thought to even look at this before. She found out that the number of African-American women who were earning their PhD was under 1% of the total PhDs. That's a pretty shocking statistic. And, And her research on patents and the impact of racism and and what she called extrajudicial executions or lynchings um, has a huge impact on on what patents are awarded and subsequent innovation in, in an economy. Some of the stories she told about taking what she found to various Nobel laureate economists, expecting them to trash her research. And they were all like, this is amazing. You got to go publish this. Milton Friedman, the champion of free market said, hey, this is interfering with the free market. You have to publish this. This is absolutely fascinating. It's a really incredible tale. She's got a really fascinating background. If you're at all paying attention to the news these days, and you're interested in institutional racism or sexism, or why the economy works better for some people than others, you're going to find this to be really a, a fascinating discussion. Data-based, objective, and really, really intriguing. So with no further ado, my conversation with Michigan State University's Lisa Cook. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Lisa Cook. She is the professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. She is a Marshall Scholar who got her PhD in economics at Berkeley. She was a researcher for the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Lisa Cook, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you so much, Barry. So Lisa, I have to ask, what drove you towards a career in economics? Barry, that's a really good question. And I have a couple of answers. One is that, as I have looked back on it over the last year or so, I think one of the important trips that we took every year was to a place called Soul City, North Carolina. My cousin, Floyd McKissick, was starting the city from scratch. He was uh, he was a protester along with Martin Luther King. He marched with him, was in the class of 1948 at Morehouse College, integrated the University of North Carolina, you know, just really active on many different fronts. But he was building a city from scratch. And this is something we saw every summer from one trailer to two trailers to three trailers to a building that housed IBM to more buildings. And what he had to do was to essentially plan an economy. And I think that that notion is something that really started 
turning the wheels for me? How do you, how do you plan an economy? And how do you try to close the racial wealth gap? This was a, a multicultural effort, but the emphasis uh, was on trying to create some good jobs so that uh, the racial wealth gap would be closed. Now, this was in the 60s and 70s, so that's, that's one answer. That's, that's upon a lot of reflection recently. But I would say that at Oxford, when I was trying to decide on one of the three uh, topics I was to study within philosophy, politics, and economics, I took this mathematical economics tutorial. It was so much fun. I was a grad student teaching it. And I, I kept telling myself, there cannot be a field that is this much fun. It can't be. Can't be. <laughs> so I kept putting it off. I climbed Kilimanjaro with this Cambridge-trained economist, and he convinced me that, no, I should not go off to LSE and do a PhD in mathematical logic, which is what I was planning. I should do a PhD in economics. So in five hours, he convinced me that this is uh, what I should do. So I think that's the answer to your question. Did you know you were always heading towards academia? And, and I have to point out, your doctoral advisors were Barry Eichengreen and David Romer. That's some pretty big firepower. That's right. I am not certain that I was always headed to academia. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, certainly because so many people in my family and around me were involved in the civil rights movement. One of the things that I thought about all the time was, was making sure that voting rights were protected. And uh, the way to do that was through the law. And it wasn't until uh, much later during uh, this period of climbing, for example, uh, and uh, trying to figure out whether it's going to do economics or not, that I rejected the, the law. But I, I didn't think I was going into academia if I did uh, the law. I, I think there's a lot of uh, hysteresis among uh, economists and among academics in general. So most of my relatives uh, were in some form of academia. So I, uh, I certainly got a lot of exposure to it, but I wasn't convinced that that's what I uh, wanted, uh, wanted to do. My advisors, whether they were uh, formal or informal at, uh, at Spelman and at Berkeley, were just off the charts amazing. One of them was uh, was uh, Donald Mitchell Stewart, who was president of Spelman College at the time, and at uh, one point at the college board, an absolute mentor and helped to, you know, encourage me to uh, apply for the Marshall and for uh, the Rhodes and other, uh, take advantage of other opportunities. Uh, Marjorie Gantz, who was our study abroad coordinator, uh, also a, a deep mentor. And then at Berkeley, uh, it was Paul Romer, in addition to the people on my committee, George Akerlof, whom I talk to all the time, especially about Russia. And the thing about choosing the topic that I did to study the Russian banking system, now this was in the early 90s, right? So we were trying to figure out what are the best models to 
analyze the the Russian economy with. Uh, is this banking system like another? Is it forming like others? Can it form like others? How does one allocate uh, credit on a market basis when it hasn't been before or recently? So I was looking for anybody who could elucidate this, and I was just grateful that people uh, talk to me and uh, were willing to serve on my uh, committee to help me hone these questions. So, yeah, Barry, Barry was uh, a fantastic person on com- my committee, David Romer. Clearly, I liked macro, right? I liked international topics. And I just had a wonderful time at Berkeley with, uh, with all of them. You've done some really fascinating research, and we're going to talk in a few minutes about your research into patents and innovation, but I have to ask about what led to the op-ed you wrote a couple of years ago in the New York Times, where you pointed out that just 0.6% of economics PhDs were awarded to black women. What was that piece's genesis, and, and what sort of feedback did it create? There were two sources of that article uh, that op-ed. The first was that the AEA, uh, American Economic Association, had done a climate survey, and I was on the committee to write up the results, and it was astonishing. Uh, the kinds of comments, especially, that we got from people in the profession, uh, you know, we learned a lot from that, as you can recall. We learned a lot about how widespread sexual harassment was. Uh, we learned uh, that people were not feeling included in economics for various reasons. We knew that uh, we suspected that promotion and pay were a problem with respect to uh, minority women, but we didn't know the extent to which that was uh, the case. And certainly we didn't know that African-American women were the ones who had to take more steps to avoid discrimination and that they were the ones reporting the most uh, discrimination. So that was worrisome in and of itself. So definitely one of the motivations for writing the op-ed to talk more about that. And and again, the comments were terrifying. Uh, One of them led the article, if I uh, were to advise my son, I would tell him not to go into economics, and I regret having gone uh, into it. Uh, this mm. person implied that she was a black woman. Uh, there was another comment that really hit home. Uh, why is it that all of these prizes are given and no African Americans ever win these prizes like Nobel? I mean, on the day that the Nobel is being awarded, uh, like the Nobel, how can that be welcoming? How can that be serious? If our research isn't being taken seriously, our careers aren't being taken seriously. And the other motivation, so one motivation was the climate study. The other one was, as director of the American Economic Association summer program, I noticed that there weren't so many black women. And I thought, okay, I know that black women outnumber black men in the STEM fields and undergraduate. So what is going on here? So I, I certainly put it at the top of my list to uh, try to recruit more black women to apply to the AEA summer program and to, uh, to get them to think more seriously about doing a PhD in economics. And uh, this was the way to do it. So I had those two 
uh, sources that led to that uh, op-ed. And with respect to the reaction, the reaction has has largely, I would say, been good uh, in the sense that it got a conversation started. It doesn't mm-hmm. even feel like it's just been a year ago. So much has happened in a year. So even well, if people were talking about it in the last year before, say, uh, the work-from-home period, before the pandemic, before uh, George Floyd, people were embracing this notion that this wasn't just one person. And I think that, that in economics, it, many of us were often told that, well, that's idiosyncratic and you're overreacting. But when you see the results from the climate survey from, you know, 9,000 respondents, we see a, a pattern. And we see a pattern with respect to pay, promotion, uh, and, and the climate in economics. So I would say that in hindsight, it was, it was well received because of the kinds of conversation, uh, it started. Uh, the Sadie Collective has taken off. It was, uh, it, uh, got started as a, uh, well, I wouldn't say as a result of, but certainly the founders are my former students in the AEA summer program. But a lot has happened in just that short year. And I think I, I'm just grateful to see the movement and hope it is sustained within the economics field. There's a lot more going on, not just uh, what I'm uh, saying, you know, renaming uh, lectures and uh, making the place more welcoming for all, all kinds of people being more open about mental health, uh, again, about being inclusive in so many different ways. I, I think this is just uh, historic. This is an historic change for the American Economic Association. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about another piece of your research that, that I find absolutely fascinating. You've documented some pretty dramatic differences in patent rates based on race and gender. Tell us a little bit about that. This research came from my dissertation, it emerged from my dissertation being written in Moscow and on the Russian banking system. I interviewed both bankers and entrepreneurs trying to figure out if a Russian banking system could emerge in this post-Soviet period. So this is the early 90s. It was a rough-and-tumble time. One major banker on average was being killed per month. It was a time when uh, structures were being figured out as long as, uh, as well as the personalities who would engage in banking in, in Russia. One thing they posed, uh, the questions they posed to me uh, had a couple of features. One common one was, why can't innovation come to Russia? And I thought it was fascinating because it had nothing to do with the Russian banking system, really. And that uh, they wanted to, to know from me, you're American, you're an economist, uh, tell us why this is the case. And I told him I have no answer, really don't have any answer. But, you know, I kind of looked around and I'm like, okay, well, if I were an inventor, I'm not sure I'd feel secure here. I'm not sure I thought that my ideas would be uh, protected. But anyway, I put a, put a placeholder in it. And I thought after I finished my dissertation, maybe I'll come back to it. And it kept 
weighing on me, this question I thought was a really good one, because at the time, the conventional wisdom was that if you protected, if a country protected intellectual property rights, that was sufficient for innovation to come, for invention and innovation to come. And I thought the Russians deserve a better answer than this. So I wondered if there were an historical experiment that could inform what the Russians were going through. And I thought, well, maybe this period of the late 1800s, early 1900s could be elucidating. And I just decided that maybe, you know, maybe I'll look at patents to see what's going on there. Of course, I thought it was going to be easy to find African-American patents. Of course, it wasn't because races it recorded on uh, patent data. So uh, that was a big uh, undertaking to match uh, names to people in the patent data set. So tell us a little bit how you were able to figure out the race of people who were applying for patent protection 150 years ago. How how were you able to get through what was a pretty bare-bones database within the government to find out who actually um, were applying for these patents? That's a good question. I tried everything. (laughs) I tried everything. So the first thing that I did was to tried to do what Molnathan and Bertrand Molnathan did and others who study black names in the contemporary period, I tried to do what they did. And I tried to take data from the census and uh, find the most popular names, uh, ones that were uh, distinctively uh, African-American, and I did it for this period, but those those don't apply. The names they used were post-Civil Rights era names. They weren't historical. So mm. I decided that I needed to do that for the historical period, and that's how I came up with the first recording of systematic names, of black names, historically for African Americans. And I did that by using the census uh, again. Uh, luckily, later on, my co-authors... Uh, Trevon Logan and John Parman helped to externally validate that list, but that was the first time that such a list uh, existed. So that was the first thing that I had to do. But after I did that, (laughs) only a few people fit that pattern. There were only a few patentees who had these uh, black names. So I was able to capture some, but not many. Then I resorted to a common myth uh, about African-American names uh, related to naming people, especially uh, men, after presidents. So started looking for presidents. Okay, so what happens is that all men in America have names that are uh, those of presidents. Uh, huh. So this is, you know, this wasn't unique to African-Americans, so that didn't help. So I just started looking for all of the scientists, potential inventors I could to try to capture the universe of inventors some way, say with directories, with articles. Uh, I found this old uh, survey of uh, patent agents and patent attorneys that was carried out in uh, 1900 and in 1913 by the patent office trying to identify uh, African-American patentees. Now, that was good for that period up to roughly 1913, but there were some flaws. It didn't accurately identify the first 
uh, African American patentee. So there were there were a few holes. So I had to fill those. But I started looking for everything, and I wanted it to not be biased towards famous people because. I mean, the the patent data set itself is not biased towards uh, famous right. people. Uh, I looked at obituaries, for example, just because uh, people would talk about their family members as inventors, and they may not have described themselves that way in, say, the census. I mean, Edison identified himself as a machinist, and many of these inventors uh, describe themselves as machinists in the census data, but... If you uh, got family members to talk about them, they would describe themselves as inventors. So anyway, I tried everything I could, and uh, eventually I was able to uh, fill this in. Um, but it took a lot of work. This is pre-Google patents. This is before <laughs> uh, this is, all of this was digitized. Uh, this is uh, ancient history now, but uh, things were changing rapidly at the time. But that's how I came up with this list of African-American inventors. And now let's put a little meat on the bones. The piece you wrote, Violence and Economic Activity, Evidence from African-American Patents, 1870 to 1940, the numbers are pretty astonishing. Patent output in the U.S. per million, so on a per capita basis, it's six patents per million African-Americans, 40 patents per million women, and 235 patents per million for all others. That's really a stark difference. That's right. And that's, that's for the modern period. That includes uh, data up to 2010, so uh, after the 1940 data. But certainly, it is still the case. The reason why it's still salient is because 1899 is still the peak year for African-American patenting per capita. That's what, one of the stark things that we learn in this paper that white patenting is two orders of magnitude higher. Uh, patenting by women is uh, one order of magnitude higher. And the size of a patent team in 1899 for African Americans is the same size today if we're using 2010 data. That is astonishing because for the rest of patentees, these patent teams have exploded. Uh, especially if we're talking, say, chemical patents. It wouldn't be unusual right. to find 20 or 30 people on uh, patent for uh, some uh, chemical product. So this is, this is one of the astonishing things about, uh, about this uh, number that is, is really stark. And one thing that I found in doing deep dives to biographies of some of these inventors, say Garrett Morgan, they led completely different lives from their counterparts like uh, Edison or for, for Garrett Morgan, it would have been Charles Brush in Cleveland, they just had to work so many channels, many back channels, for example, to be able to sell their wares. He had to dress up like a Native American to be able to display his gas mask because uh, once it was found out that he was African-American and this gas mask was being used by fire departments uh, all across the South, they started canceling their orders. And uh, the fire departments all across the country, but the ones in the South started canceling their orders. He used to hire uh, white men to pretend like they were him and go around the country to sell his gas mask. So he was really adept at overcoming is increasing consumer-side uh, discrimination in America at the time. 
So how do we explain why patents peaked for African-Americans in 1899? What was so significant about what happened right afterwards? I think that it was largely Plessy versus Ferguson. So that was in 1896. And mm-hmm. this was the culmination of a long period of repealing pieces of the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And this was, you know, the southern states were challenging it bit by bit, chipping away at it bit by bit. And when Plessy happened, it was, uh, you know, it was a big blow, separate but equal. So this is a ruling on separate but equal. Um, That... This is this is a big blow because inventors at the time were doing what everybody else was doing, right? They were they were uh, going to libraries to find patent digests to find out what the latest inventions were. They were running into each other at uh, their patent attorney's office or uh, in the downtowns of all of these places where they were working. But all of a sudden, that wasn't possible anymore. These commercial districts became all white. Uh, They weren't able to manufacture and sell their inventions. They had to often become uh, middlemen and and become wholesalers so that they weren't facing the public. Some of them went out of business uh, altogether and stopped inventing altogether. We have a number of uh, stories like that. So I think it was largely this growing violence, and uh, especially Plessy versus Ferguson. And and with respect to the date, uh, what my friends who are constitutional law scholars tell me is that this takes a period of time, say two or three years, for rulemaking. And when it became clear that they couldn't engage in in this, uh, I think that they rushed everything they could to the patent office and uh, and hope for the best, and it just never happened. Now, it started recovering after some of the violence uh, stopped, but it never got back to the 1899 peak. And that's really mm. astonishing because uh, there are a lot more people, a lot more PhDs and, and uh, natural scientists, for example, uh, a lot more PhDs in engineering, but uh, we don't see this... Uh, showing up in the patent data. So earlier this year, the Tulsa race massacre was in uh, the news. The president was going to hold a rally on the anniversary of that. What was the impact of that event on subsequent patents and innovations in the African-American community? So, Barry, that's a really interesting question. This is one of those things where you see the data and you have no idea what's going on. Like, I was, I was thinking, okay, 1921, why is this showing up in the data? What, like, what happened on a national scale? I'm thinking, okay, so World War I is over. You know, I, I could not put my finger on it. And then I was like, aha, that's not good. The, this was the largest racial massacre in U.S. history. And it had an impact on everybody. John Hope Franklin wrote about it. The famous historian wrote about it. He was actually a child uh, in that massacre. And uh, his family business was torn up just like many others and, and destroyed. Lots of people died. And he was saying that there was this fear that permeated all African Americans because, as the commission that investigated this said, 
no one was safe. There was failure at every level of government, at the local level, at the state level. And the president at the time refused to uh, end the violence that was happening there. And the NAACP president uh, went to uh, see him to try to negotiate an end to this. But it was it was really serious in that it showed up in the data and I couldn't make it couldn't make it go away. It was just that serious. There was no there was no other year like that besides uh, besides 1900. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the profession of economics. You've attended fairly traditional economics program. You've taught at traditional schools. What do you think are some of the bigger changes that's taking place today versus back when you were a student? There was no conversation about why African-Americans are missing in economics when I was in college or even in graduate school. There's no conversation like that. Even though there is a longstanding program, the AEA summer program, which I now direct and which I did at Stanford, there was no broad conversation about that. There was no broad conversation about what was wrong with the economics profession. Um, you know, I wish that I'd heard the Planet Money series that was done about my paper, uh, both the topic and my paper, because I think that that there would have been more realization by many people and by those who were trying to get into the field that what they were facing, they weren't facing alone. So I, I think that that's the biggest change. There was no letter uh, that many people have read, say, by Bill Spriggs, that was widely circulated. You didn't have a president of a Federal Reserve Bank at all, number one. You certainly didn't see anybody in that leadership position. Uh, there were members of the, um, uh, of the FOMC uh, who were African-American. Certainly, uh, Emmett Rice uh, was one of the first ones. And, you know, I knew about them, but it didn't seem tangible, especially for for black women. And I think that this open conversation is not something that anybody could have anticipated that has moved very far in a very short period of time, that we would even try to count how many African-American economists there are at the Federal Reserve. I, I never heard such questions posed and certainly never thought, you know, that I would hear Nobel laureates telling me, you've got to publish this. This is, this is groundbreaking work. You've, you've got to publish this. Had no idea that this would be uh, the case or that they would be as interested as they were and, and proved to be. And certainly grateful for it, but didn't think of it at, at all when I was uh, coming through the educational system. So over the summer, a former Federal Reserve researcher, Claudia Sam, she also was a researcher at the CEA, posted a fiery blog post, quote, economics is a disgrace, and lays out a lot of the specifics that you're discussing. What are your thoughts on her criticism of the profession, and what are the role of politics in economics? 
That's a good question. Now, I have to tell you that I didn't read the actual blog post um, because I I understand that I am in it, and I really, (laughs) at that time, didn't want to... This could not deal with it uh, emotionally because I'd been talking about this a lot, talking about economics, the economics profession a lot. But Claudia, I think, is and has been a catalyst for a lot of frank discussions in economics. And because she's been in this special, rarefied place of being at the Federal Reserve, of uh, having this thumb rule. You know, uh, there are very few few rules named after in macro, uh, named after women. Uh, having been at CEA, she has been at the top of the field in so many different ways. So she has a special place uh, from which she sits and can see the profession, the broad profession. And she's also not afraid because she has uh, interacted with the current and former uh, presidents of the AEA, uh, Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke. So she, she could address them as colleagues, as peers. And I think it has been, she's fostered this this very necessary conversation, and she's been an advocate for graduate students, for uh, people who have felt uh, sexually harassed or racially harassed in the economics uh, profession. And, you know, the ombudsperson has been quite engaged. We finally hired an ombudsperson uh, at the American Economic Association We needed somebody, if we were going to say these problems exist, we needed somebody to do something about them. It's not perfect yet. That mechanism is not perfect yet. But I appreciate people who are as engaged as Claudia is, and she does a lot to mentor the next generation of of economists, and not just women and not just uh, African-Americans, not just African-American women. She spends time during this this season, preparing, helping people to prepare for the job market. She reads their papers. She is providing many different public goods for the profession. And I just think that she's, uh, she's just a gem in the profession that we need more people like her who will hold our leaders accountable, point, point to the issues, but also uh, try to figure out ways to address those issues. And and she's a problem solver. I mean, the SOM rule was created as a mechanism to solve a problem. She talks about automatic stabilizers and writes about this. So she's, she's a problem solver in every dimension. So I appreciate her being in the profession. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on today with the recession what is this doing to income and wealth inequality? I'm not sure it could do more. I'm not sure this pandemic could do more. It is really driving a serious wedge between those who have income and wealth and those who don't. Whether we're talking about those who hold stocks and those who don't, and uh, just under 50% of Americans do not hold any stock. They are not seeing the gains. The 
the stock market has largely recovered from uh, the beginning of the pandemic. So we did see this in the Great Recession, too. So that's not so unusual that that uh, stocks recover before employment does. But income inequality is taking a beating. How is that? Because let's say if we add a racial dimension to it, African-Americans are subject to occupational segregation. So they're in a lot of these front-facing uh, occupations to which they would be disproportionately exposed to COVID-19. So that's one way in which they're deciding between a job and eating or a job and rent, uh, a job and their health. So, so this is one of the ways in which um, income inequality has come to the fore. For wealth inequality, it's even more stark. So as I was mentioning, uh, certainly the stock market is recovering. Uh, not as many uh, people among African Americans are in the stock market. Uh, certainly wealth is orders of magnitude lower for African American households compared to white households. But there's one thing that I follow that really troubles me, and that is small businesses. There are 50 white entrepreneurs for every black entrepreneur. And as we know, this is a tried and true path to the middle class and to wealth accumulation in America. And what we know about black businesses is that a disproportionate number are reporting closing permanently as a result of the recession, the pandemic and and recession. And they didn't receive PPP funds. Uh, We're not recording. SBA is not recording the applicants. And we don't have good demographic data, but from the surveys that have been done, we know that when they replied, when they applied, they were rejected. You know, this is due to the big banks being relied upon to uh, dole out these uh, loans, but also for the amount they were requesting, they got disproportionately less. So hmm. what I worry about is this fissure uh, growing uh, significantly, not just now, but in the future, because certainly income now uh, lays the groundwork for wealth in the future. So given the sort of work-from-home pandemic economy that we're living in, some people have been calling this a, quote, she session, unquote, right. because so much of it is falling disproportionately on on the shoulders of, of women. How accurate is that phrase? Is this overstating it? Or is there really a deep gender fissure as well as a, a racial fissure? Absolutely. There's a gender fissure uh, that is that is also there. Uh, with the racial fissure. And we could see this in the American Time Use Survey and the census. What we know about women is that regardless of occupation, regardless of income, they spend a disproportionate amount of time on care of other individuals in the household. That might be children, that might be the elderly, but they spend more time uh, taking care of those people. And that happened before. That was happening before the pandemic. And women are the ones who are having to drop out of the workforce while these uh, students are stuck at home, small children especially, are stuck at home trying to do their homework or uh, trying to make sure that 
they have their their snacks on time and, and get through their schoolwork. So this is a she session. Women are back at their participation rates from 1987. That is shocking. And for it to happen in such a short period of time is absolutely shocking. And this is going to have lasting scars, leave lasting, lasting scars on the labor market. Because one thing we know is that when women are out of the labor force, they slow down with respect to pay, with respect to promotion. And I am just hoping that we will get some kind of support for child care to make sure that uh, that uh, some of these women can recover and recover more quickly. Quite interesting. So the CARES Act was passed at the end of the first quarter. It was about $3 trillion. If you would have asked me over the summer, will we see a follow-up, another couple of trillion dollars? I, I would have given you 10 to 1 odds that absolutely the politicians in an election right. year, of course right. they're going to pass a second stimulus. Right. But right. here we are, middle of October, no such stimulus passed yet. Did we go far enough with the first CARES Act? And are you at all surprised that there hasn't been a follow-up? What do you think is going to happen? And how much stimulus is needed given the way the economy is starting to plateau and attenuate from from that big bounce back we saw over the summer? Barry, you and I were in the same position. That's exactly what I thought, too. And what I knew was that we, if we had a national coordinated strategy, we could possibly be seeing our way back to normalcy by this time. If we had a national mask mandate, for example. Right. But that didn't happen. And what I find shocking is this. Three trillion dollars was, was a good start. But we are repeating the lessons of 2008, 2009. I cannot believe this. I was on the Obama transition team at the time. And what I was watching was austerity being put into place. And, and I was also there in 2011, 2012. Austerity being put into place when the last thing you needed was austerity. You need to throw money at people so that, yes, they will stay, stay afloat whether it's businesses or households or the unemployed, they just need to stay afloat while we figure this pandemic out. And and that is what is still needed. But we're repeating the mistakes of 2008, 2009. What we see is state and local governments laying off people and, and firing people. And this is what we saw before. And that's why the recovery has stalled. I can't believe that we're doing exactly the same thing. And that's so, why, like Claudia, I believe in automatic stabilizers. We've got to have more so that this is not J-PAL begging Congress and the administration to do something. And all of the other Fed officials do. And, and it is clear that fiscal policy is what is needed. The, the limits are uh, the Federal Reserve are there. It's not as if they are, are boundless in what they can do and the kinds of resources they can provide. They've been fast. They've been quick. But they can't do everything. So I so, am just shocked that we haven't, that, that the administration and Congress, the, the Senate Republicans, have blocked aid to American people, households, and businesses. 
I think it's absolutely unconscionable. There's definitely an eviction and uh, rental crisis that is right at our feet. It's right in front of us, and we're not doing anything about it. These so hospitals let me... are closing, and we're not doing anything about it. I, I'm, I'm just in shock. So let me step back and ask you the 30,000-foot view question, which is we saw a, a very miserly stimulus right at, at the beginning of 2009. It was, I know this sounds ridiculous to say, about $800 billion, which mm-hmm. proved to be way too small. We right. saw the rise of austerity, not, not just here, but also in the UK. And then in 2017, we saw a massive pro-cyclical tax cut in stimulus. Mm-hmm. I thought the rule book was, hey, in a deep recession, you want to see counter-cyclical fiscal stimulus, not late-cycle pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus. What's the lesson to be taken away from this? That somebody is not telling the truth about budget deficits and about growth. Because what we know is that the short-run deviations like 2008, 2009, in order for them to remain short-run deviations of output, you have to go big and you have to assure the American people that something is on the way and that they won't be out there on their own. And the same is true for businesses. It is absolutely unconscionable that businesses that, through no fault of their own, are laying off tens of thousands of people. The airlines are laying off tens of thousands of people. And that's not going to affect just them. Of course, their dollar supports many other jobs, and not just in the cities where there are hubs. This is, this is, this is true in general. So I'm still in shock that we are not doing more and that the, the lessons of the Great Recession have not, been, uh, have not been learned. It's almost as if some folks were awake for the first two days of Econ 101 and just slept through the rest of the semester. <laughs> they missed the chapter on Keynes. So here's the pushback. Hey, listen, we don't have access to infinite money. $3 trillion is a lot. And at a certain point, we have to start being concerned about the deficit. How do you respond to that sort of pushback? We do have to become concerned about the deficit, but that time is not now. Absolutely not now. That would be uh, misplaced. How do, you, how do you sustain growth? How do, you, how do you keep people afloat? How do you keep businesses afloat? That's the question we should be asking. And this is a common view of economists. Many economists, as you know, of all stripes, are saying the same thing I'm saying, that we worry about deficits in, in the future, Let's, you know, when the economy gets back on its feet, let's start worrying about those deficits. Until then, it's, it's abstract. It's, you know, why, why do you starve a person who's already hungry? That, that is ridiculous. And if you hobble the economy now, let's say, for example, we could be using PPP to give to our smallest, newest businesses. If those smallest, newest businesses don't stay alive, we're going to permanently hit long-run growth because these are some of the businesses that give us innovation. This is where innovation comes from often. It's from the smallest, newest businesses. And if we don't help them, what we are doing is saying, 
we're not going to contribute innovation to long-run growth anymore. And that is really unconscionable. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't penalize the economy that way. Quite interesting. I know I only have you for a few minutes, so let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Sure. Tell us, uh, what are you streaming? What are you watching or listening to these days now that we're all working from home? The first thing that I've been streaming has been uh, Nollywood movies and TV series you know, from, mm-hmm. from Nigeria. And uh, the, the TV series that I just thought really interesting is 50, and then there's this movie called Chief Daddy. I'm also uh, watching Chernobyl, and I, you know, Chernobyl I find fascinating. It was well done. I used to live in, in Russia, so I certainly know this story very well and studied the former Soviet Union quite a bit. But I can't watch it sometimes because it's so close to home. And I think it was an excellent series. I'm watching Schitt's Creek. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the, that and I, I'm not finished yet. Uh, I'm keeping it as a, a mini series for myself. And certainly I listen to uh, Planet Money and Serial. Those are, are things that I uh, stream a lot. So, uh, so those are those are they. You mentioned some of your early mentors previously. Tell us who helped shape your career. I will uh, say from a distance. Uh, I told you some who were uh, close to home, but you know Barbara Jordan was one. I was mm-hmm. forced to watch by my grandmother her leading the impeachment hearings against uh, Richard Nixon. Had no idea who she was, but. My grandmother was saying, this is how democracy works. You've got to watch this. This is how democracy works. So there was something that I found incredibly inspiring about Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm. And I tried to understand how they got to know what they knew and started taking myself a lot more seriously as a person who was interested at some level and public service. Quite interesting. Tell us some of your favorite books. What What are you reading now, and what have what ends up on your all time favorite list? Well, you know, one book that is my favorite book of the summer is uh, a book that is nonfiction, but it reads like fiction. It is so good. It is the World According to Fanny Davis by Bridget uh, Davis, and it is about the underground economy, the numbers runners in Detroit. It's going to be turned into a, a movie and has been the subject of a number of uh, NPR interviews. But I'm also reading uh, books like um, uh, Marcia uh, Baradaran's uh, uh, The Color of Money. Uh, I'm reading, um, of course, Sandy Darity's From Here to uh, Equality. You know, I'm just trying to learn as much as I can about the moment. I, I'm reading the deficit myth so that I can understand more about how we think about uh, deficits. That's that's one way to think about uh, deficits. But I am also rereading things like uh, Moneyball. Uh, I used to teach the uh, economics of baseball, and I would look forward to teaching it again. But that's just fun. That, you know, that's that, that's just fun. That's just economics for fun. 
So what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is considering a career in economics? I would say to get as prepared as you can. And when I say prepared, I don't mean doing five or six uh, pre-doc programs, uh, maybe do, uh, do one or an RA ship, but get to know your professors or contact your professors if you've already graduated and read as much about the economy as you can. I think being anchored in, you know, podcasts like, like yours or, or interviews like yours, uh, reading uh, Bloomberg and FT and uh, the New York Times business and economics section, I think having a point of reference is critical because I find that many, many students don't. So I think that it's critical to have some, some frame of reference, and I think it would be inspiring and, and interesting once you do. Quite interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of economics today that you wish you knew 25 years ago when you were really first getting started? I wish I knew more about how policymakers think about policymakers who are not economists and who aren't at uh, the Fed or Treasury think about how to help people. So I'm thinking about Congress now, and I, I wish I knew more about how they thought about the economy. Because if I understood that then, and frankly, if I understood that now, maybe we could affect the way they're thinking so that we don't run into this other prolonged recession. And, and you know, the danger here, Barry, is that deflation is a real worry. That can actually happen. We haven't met our inflation targets for, for almost a decade, only, you know, a handful of times in a decade. That could be a real serious problem. So I would like to understand better how people who make fiscal policy think, and I wish I could uh, influence it more because the American people, American households, businesses, need state and local governments, the arts, need a lot of help right now. Quite interesting. Thank you, Lisa Cook, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Professor Lisa Cook. She teaches economics and international relations at the James Madison College at Michigan State University. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out any of the other 350 or so previous interviews we've had. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. You can check out my weekly columns on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Sign up for our daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Be sure and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each week. My audio engineer is Marufal. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Boyle is our producer. And I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business. 
on Bloomberg Radio.